stay involved during the week. Um, and your teenagers, your young adults, your children, we have content, we have live things, we have recorded things. Um, just be checking all the time, the Facebook uh, page, the website, we have stuff for your kids, for you on Wednesday night. We're continuing these classes, got some couple new great classes coming out as, as Brandon was talking about, so be sure to make that available during this time that we're all kind of shut up. We need to be able to fellowship in that way together. Well, listen, I uh, have been doing uh, preaching for about the last eight weeks, and I don't know about you, I'm kind of tired of, of seeing myself and, and hearing my voice, and so I have asked Pastor Tyler to come today to bring the Word of God right there in your home. Would you give it up for our student and young adult pastor? Pastor Tyler, come on and give us the Word. Amen. I'm not going to touch it. Okay. Yeah, social distancing. Amen. Well, it's so good to be with you today, and uh, I trust that you are just experiencing God's presence right there in your home like we have here today in this room. And that's the wonderful thing about the God that we serve. In fact, something that I'm going to talk about in just a minute is the fact that he's not constrained or restrained to a room, but that he is a God that wants to dwell in our very being. And so that's why we can, the, the church hasn't been shut down just because the church building has been closed. But in fact, the church has expanded. And now our homes are where God is manifesting his presence. And so I trust that that's true for you today. And I'm so excited to be able to share the word with you. And uh, man, it's, it's been a, a little while since I've gotten to share with, with our New Life adults, with the church community. I share with students and young adults on a regular basis. But since the last time I got to share with you, God has blessed our family immensely. And uh, we have a new baby girl at home. And uh, she was born in February. And so, listen, this honestly, if there was going to be a time that we had to be shut up in the house as a dad, it's pretty awesome that I get to stay at home and hold my baby for the last few weeks. Of course, I've, I've held her enough now. We're ready to get back to normality. We're ready to get back to a normal schedule. But uh, it, it's been amazing, and God's blessed us so much. And uh, I never want to fail to give glory to him for answering that prayer and just being, being real for us in that way. And uh, so, yeah, that's some exciting developments in our home. And we have three children now. we got an eight-year-old and a six-year-old, and they are home all the time, literally all the time. And all my parents out there, you're saying they never leave. They're always there. I wake up every morning, and they're still breaking stuff, and they're still crazy, and they're homeschooled. So that's, that's where we're at right now. So we're excited about it. We're all just real excited, right? We just tell ourselves that. Well, I do want to say, I want to get into the message. I don't want to take a whole lot of your time. But before I do get into it, I want to give honor to Pastor Allen. He was talking about, uh, you know, the fact that he's filling different roles. But I just want to give honor to him because I don't know if you know this or not, but leading during seasons of crisis is one of the most challenging things in the world. And I just want to give honor to him for leading our church in the way that he has throughout this season. And I'm just believing that God is going to bless New Life Church because of our leadership. And I'm so thankful for him and Miss Kathy and all the pastoral staff that, that lead us so well. And um, I just, right there, I want you guys to know that we're being led by a man and a woman of God. Be praying for them. Be praying that God would give them wisdom as they lead throughout the remainder of this season together. And I'm just believing God's going to bless our church. I do want us to go today to the book of Acts. We're going to go to Acts chapter 2. Before I read my text, I just want to say a word of prayer over our time together. I want to pray that God's going to just go ahead and let his spirit rest in the room with you because I want, I want this word to resonate with you. I want you to receive it, and I want it to be a word that brings change to our lives. 
That's what, that's what the word is supposed to do. It's supposed to be something that, that it pierces us and that it, it separates the good from the bad in our life and it helps mold us into who God has called us to be. And so that's what I want this word to do for us today. So right where you are, I just want you to bow your heads with me and I'm going to say a word of prayer with you. God, we come to you today and we are just believing that you are going to meet us right where we are. God, I pray that in every living room, in every kitchen, Lord, every bedroom that this sermon is being watched, Lord, that it wouldn't just be a screen that was putting forth words, but God, that your presence would be with them, that you would begin to convict, that you would begin to confront, and God, that you would allow us to leave these moments together changed by the power of your word. And we give you glory for what you're going to accomplish. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to Acts chapter 2. Verse number one, and I'm going to read this real quick. This is just kind of giving us a launching point that we're going to get to in just a minute. So Acts chapter two, one, it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Key phrase there, they were all filled. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, like I said, I'm going to work my way to my text today and what I'm talking to you about. But to give you an idea of the mindset and the idealism that I'm coming from, I just got to ask, is there anybody out there in Facebook or YouTube that you would say, you know what, I love routine? Like, you're like, maybe it's not you, but I want you to go ahead and in the comments, I want you to tag the person in your life. We would refer to them as OCD. They like things to go a certain way. And so it's got to be the way that I like it. And they put everything in the way that they want. And if you mess it up, they're going to let you know about it. We all have that family member. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's one of your kids that when things get out of the order that they had put them in, it's not just like a small deal. It's like World War III has taken place, and it's a nuclear explosion whenever the, their system gets messed up. For me, that person is, is honestly, and he's probably watching right now, and so, Dad, I just got to let you know, my dad is a little bit OCD. Now, Alan Harris is one of the most godly men that I know. Like, I love my dad. I respect my dad. He is one of the most amazing people in my life, one of my heroes. But I got to tell you, the dude is OCD completely. And my brother, he would agree with that. My mom would agree with that. And growing up, obviously, one of the greatest reasons that we have kids is because they highlight everything about us that maybe is perceived to be wrong. And so me and my brother made it our really our job to highlight the fact that our dad is OCD, that he likes things to be the way that he likes them. He has a very particular way that he does things. My dad eats pretty much the same thing for breakfast and lunch most days, at least in the same category or genre of food. He eats the same stuff. My dad, he has the same routine that he goes through each and every night before he goes to bed. He has to do each thing systematically, and then he goes to bed. And one of the greatest ways that his OCD would manifest itself and that we would make fun of him is when we were growing up, my dad had issues with cellulitis in his legs, and so he had to wear these compression socks, special compression socks to help with blood flow to his, his lower legs. And so every time he would get into the car, he had a very particular routine 
that when he would get in, he would go to the door, he would open the door, he would adjust that right sock and get it just right, then sit down, adjust the left sock, and then get in. And this would take about a minute and a half to two minutes each and every time. And so me and my brother always would make fun of this, that we knew when we got in the car, we might as well get comfortable because it's going to be a minute or two before we even get on the road because we would make fun of our dad like every good son does. Now, let me tell you that I don't make fun of my dad nearly as much anymore because I'm coming to find out that at least in the regard of being a little bit OCD, I am my father. Like, I like things to go in the way that I have them planned to go. And I'm not one of these people that's organized enough to, like, actually put it in writing or put it in a planner. But I get in my head the way that a day is going to look. I get in my head the way that a situation is going to look. And if the day doesn't look like that or the situation doesn't look like that, I get extremely frustrated. In fact, just this week, I had a day that I had, I had scheduled out what was going to happen. And I was going to get up in the morning. And I was going to read my Bible. And I was going to pray. And I was going to spend some time with God. And then I was going to begin sermon prepping for the sermon that I'm sharing with you right now. And my plan was to finish my Bible reading and prayer and all that, have all that done by 9.30 and then spend the morning hours from about 9.30 to 12.30 doing some sermon prep and, and kind of putting together, polishing the sermon notes that I had. That was my plan. Now, mind you, during all of this, my wife has been homeschooling two children and taking care of a newborn baby. So she's been at home for the last four weeks with these little humans, not really having a lot of adult interaction. And so as any normal person does, she needed like to see some, some adult people, like have, have a friend. And so she scheduled a Starbucks parking lot date because that's where we're at in America now is we do Starbucks parking lot dates with a friend. And so she went and it was all going to be fine because again, Blakeland's a newborn. And so you give her a bottle and she's going to sleep and the boys will entertain themselves with PlayStation or iPad, whatever. So I was like, it's cool. It's fine. Like, that's good. I'll still do my thing. I'll still have my sermon prep. It'll be great. Problem is that as soon as she walked out the door, everything expected in life didn't happen. Blakeland did not sleep. The boys did not entertain themselves with PlayStation. And so my plan to be done with Bible reading and prayer and begin sermon prep at 930 turned into it being 11 o'clock. And I hadn't even opened my Bible yet. And I, I was obviously very excited about that. I loved the fact that I was just answering questions from the eight-year-old and the six-year-old, and I was taking care of a baby, and I I obviously told my wife about my frustrations in a very Christ-like tone and manner. I was very excited about the way that things were going down because the problem was not that I was taking care of my kids. The problem was not that my wife was out of the house. The The problem was my routine got completely and totally destroyed. What I had planned didn't take place. And I think all of us, to some degree, like routine. We like to know what's coming. We like to know what's about to happen. And so that's why this season of pandemic has been so challenging. Because can I tell you something? Routine has been thrown out the window. Everything that was supposed to happen did not happen. Everything that was scheduled got unscheduled. I'm going to tell you, I've been borderline in need of therapy because the NCAA tournament didn't happen. I have been so broken because, listen, I'm a Kentucky fan, and every single year we think we're going to win. Like, we never do, but we always think we're going to. And so I didn't have that exciting moment of Selection Sunday. And some of you, you're feeling my pain because for you it's not the NCAA tournament, but opening day didn't happen this year. The Braves didn't have opening day. MLB didn't happen. Some of you seniors, the, the high schoolers, you didn't know that the last week you were walking the halls of your school would be the last time ever. And now you don't know if you're going to have graduation. Some of you, you didn't plan on being furloughed. You thought you were going to be working where you're at. Some of you were about to retire. It doesn't matter what your situation. All of us have had our routine 
broken and shaken. And I think the pervading question that all of us are having is, why? Like, why did this have to happen? If you go beyond, maybe beyond sports and, and jobs, even though jobs are serious, but beyond some of those things, in a more serious manner, I think in the church world, last week a lot of us were asking why. Like, it's Easter. It is the biggest day of the year in the Christian community, and our auditoriums were empty. I think all across our ministry world, we were saying, why did this have to happen? Why couldn't we gather together? And so the other day, I was spending time in prayer, and I began to just ask God, like, why is this happening? Why can't we gather? Why couldn't we be together for Easter? And I I didn't hear an audible voice, but I'm telling you, if I've ever heard the Holy Spirit impress something on me, he just told me. He said, you want to know why? Because you asked for this. And I was like, hold on. Pretty sure I would remember if I prayed for a worldwide pandemic that was going to shut down the world. And he said, no, no, no. You asked for this when you said, will you send revival? You asked for this when you said, I want a new level of your spirit. You asked for this when corporately you got together and you said, oh, we need more of you, God. We need your anointing in another level. He said, you asked for this. But see, the problem is when we prayed those things, And when we asked for those things that we anticipated him giving us another level of his spirit in addition to our regularly scheduled programming, that we anticipated him pouring out the healing and the hope that we needed without it adjusting or affecting our schedule at all. But Jesus is very transparent throughout scripture in letting us know that if we want something new, we got to let go of something old. He said, you can't put new wine into old wineskins because if you do, the wineskins will burst and both the wine and the wineskin will be wasted. And so when we asked him for an outpouring and another level of his spirit, he had to get rid of the old. And I think that's because of a truth that most of what I talk to you about today is going to hinge on. And that's this, that routine is the enemy of revival. Routine is the enemy of revival. And that brings me to the subject of my conversation with you today. And that's that new costs normal. If you want something new, it's going to cost what had become normal. And this is a truth that plays out all throughout the Old Testament. Literally, you can look at every character in Scripture. In fact, just in the Pentateuch, I want to quickly survey with you that the fact that we find Abraham, the patriarch of our faith, before he could experience his destiny and his calling, he had to leave his father's house. He had to leave where he was comfortable. And then he has Isaac, who's the child of promise. But before Isaac can walk into his destiny, he can't marry someone from the world that he's comfortable with, like all of his friends are. But they have to send back a messenger to where his father was from to find him a wife. And then he has Jacob. And before Jacob can become Israel and experience his blessing and experience his destiny, he has to leave the normal that he's used to and be isolated and wrestle with God to have a name change. And then Jacob has a son named Joseph, who before he can experience his new or his destiny, He has to leave his normal by being thrown in a pit and then sold to Potiphar and then going to prison. And then he ends up in a palace. And then Genesis skips ahead and it finds us to Moses, who's in the book of Exodus, who has before he can lead the nation of Israel out of slavery, has to go into a wilderness and spend some time by himself watching sheep. And then Moses brings on a protege named Joshua, who has to be one of two that are different from their culture and aren't normal like everyone else who says we can't conquer. And he has to be the one that says, I believe we can take it. And then Joshua has to spend more time time in the tabernacle than everybody else. You see, it happens time and time and time and time again. 
that those who are experiencing something new or are progressing towards their purpose have to let go of what everyone else says is normal. And so Joshua finally gets to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land that God had promised Abraham hundreds of years ago. And it's a beautiful moment in Scripture. It's a beautiful moment in the narrative of Scripture because it shows that God keeps his promises. It shows that God is able to sustain and that that God always makes a way for his people. But it's also a turning point in the nation of Israel. It's a turning point in their history because as soon as they get into the promised land, they get comfortable. As soon as they get into the promised land, they don't got to break down the tabernacle anymore. They don't got to worry about gathering manna. They don't got to hope that God turns a rock into a water fountain. They don't have to wonder how they're going to get through, but they're able to establish systems and they're able to get a sense of normality and they're able to settle in. And I want you to look at what the Bible says about the generation that comes after the generation that got comfortable. Judges chapter 2 verse 10 says, When all the generation, speaking of the generation of Joshua, had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. How is that even possible? How is it that the generation that is getting to live in the promise of God is the generation that forgets the God that gave the promise? How's that even possible? The answer to that question is normalcy. You see, a a nation that was able to remember and maintain their faith throughout 400 years of slavery in a pagan nation could not maintain their walk with God throughout one generation of normalcy. Because when they got complacent, when they got comfortable, no longer did they depend on God, and so no longer did they have to go to God. And see, here's the thing, and, and listen, I need to preface all this by saying that this is a heavy word today, But it's not a heavy word in the sense of when I was growing up, some of the preachers would get up and they say, I got a heavy word. That meant they were about to just absolutely destroy you. When I'm saying this is a heavy word, I'm saying that this has been beating me up all week. And so now I get to share it with you and let God do what he wants to do with it. But listen, I think that we as the Western American church world, that we really mirror a post-Joshua generation. Because the reason that they, they were comfortable and they got normal is because They didn't have to fight for anything they had. That generation was born into the promise. They were born into blessing. They were born into a land flowing with milk and honey. And so it was just commonplace to them. And can I tell you that in in our spirit-filled churches, in, in the church world that we come to know, we didn't have to fight for a lot of what we have. I inherited this experience. I inherited this blessing. I inherited this moment and and the way that I know God. I inherited a lot of it because I was raised in church. And maybe you're a first-generation Christian, and this doesn't apply to you. But for the most part, I think a lot of us have inherited a lot of what we have. And so here's the thing that I know to be true. You don't prioritize what you don't pay for. And so because we didn't have to fight for it, because we didn't have to have to claw for it, and we didn't have to strive for it, we've taken it, and we have an indifferent attitude towards it. And the reason I know that is because some of the excuses that we used before all this happened to not be in the house of God. Some of y'all are like, uh-oh, he's, he's about to come down my row now. Like, I'm with you. I'm, I'm in the same boat. Like, how many times have you been like, well, I, I'd go to church, but ah, just, I got a headache, you know? I'd go to church, but I got lunch plans at noon, so I can't, can't really make it. I'd go to church, but I got this sporting event or that. I'd go to church, but I got... We had all of these things that, listen, the the thing is, when you become indifferent and you get comfortable, your priorities get misplaced. 
and you value things that are not valuable and you neglect things that are invaluable. And that's where the church world was before all of this happened. We had misplaced priorities. And as a result, if we're honest, we had an ineffective faith. Because I got to tell you something, the normal that we knew was not working. How do you know that? Depression rates at an all-time high, suicide rates on the high, divorce rates at an all-time high, alcoholism, drug addiction, sexual perversion, affecting every single one of us in some way or another. The normal that we had become accustomed to was not working. We were not affecting our world to the way that we needed to. And I think all of us knew that and we understood that. But the problem is changing normal is a scary thing. Because you got to take a step of faith into something that you don't understand, into something that you don't see. And so here's what God did. He used the hellborn agenda that was this pandemic, that was this sickness, that was this coronavirus to do something and bring about something good. And that's this. God annihilated our normal. God destroyed it. In an instant, God said, what you've been doing, you're not going to do anymore because it's not working. But the problem that we're facing is that mankind is very defensive of normal. Like, when you come at normal, we get upset. In fact, if you boil it down, that's why Jesus was crucified. Jesus wasn't crucified because he was healing people. Jesus wasn't crucified because he was opening up God's word. The things that got Jesus crucified were the fact that he looked at the Pharisees and he said, you look in the scriptures thinking that you're going to find life, but you don't realize that it's right in front of you. What got Jesus crucified was the fact that he said the temple is going to be torn down and built back up in three days because he challenged everything that they had come to expect and receive as normal. And they got so mad about it that they killed him. They got so mad about it that they said, we got to crucify this guy because he's saying that our normal isn't good enough. But thankfully, we celebrated last week the fact that when you don't succumb to normal, you don't got to succumb to death. And so because Jesus was willing to challenge the normality that the religious world had come to see, he was also able to stand up and say, I got victory over death, hell in the grave, and rise again three days later. And we celebrated that. But something I want to tell you today is that when Jesus got up out of the grave, there was still a promise that he had not fulfilled yet. There was still something that he had told his disciples would take place that hadn't happened yet. John chapter 14, verse number 12, Jesus, when his disciples are coming to him and saying, listen, we see you healing people and we see you doing all these great things. Look at what he said. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes me, the works that I do, he'll do also. In fact, greater works than these he will do because I go to my father. That's a promise that Jesus gave to his people. But can I tell you something that hit me this week? A risen Jesus did not entirely equate to an empowered church. Not yet. Just because Jesus had gotten up did not mean that the disciples had any more power over demonic spirits or sickness or anything. They didn't have it yet. They had not received that yet. And so in Acts chapter 1, verse number 4, there was still a step that they had to take. And so Jesus, as he's getting ready to ascend into heaven, he looks at them. And as he's gathered his disciples together, it says, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. He said, there's still more that you need to accomplish what I've called you to accomplish. Now, After this, they had to leave the Mount of Olives and they had to go to Jerusalem and ascend into the upper room. The the reason that I tell you that is because 
There was a step that they had to take. There was a change that they had to make in order to receive the promise of God. And here's something that I've heard numerous times, and I've even said numerous times, is that when we come out of this thing, we're going to be better and we're going to be stronger and, and, and all these things, and there's going to be awakening. And, and I believe prophetically that that's going to happen. Like, I'm believing for that. But here's the thing. Just being shut up in our houses for eight weeks is not going to magically make us a more empowered church. Just not having church for a couple months is not going to magically transform things for us. And the reason I say that is because I've picked up a new hobby during this whole thing because you can only watch so much Netflix before you start trying to figure out other things to do. And so I started baking this week. That's how bored I was. I wanted some cookies, and my wife is taking care of three kids, and so I couldn't get her to make me any cookies, so I decided I'm going to bake my own. And so I went on Pinterest, and I found a lovely recipe, which, by the way, I can share the link to it. I'm just kidding. But I got, I got this, this recipe for sugar cookies, and I put the batter all together, and I made them, and they were great. But here's something that I noticed. When I made that dough, and I put the flour and the, and the butter and the sugar and all those things together, and you had to roll it in little balls and then roll it back in sugar and put it on the thing, like I could have put it on the baking sheet and put it in the oven and walked away for a minute or 10 minutes or an hour or a day, and that dough would have still been dough if I never turned the oven on. Because what makes the difference is not the fact that I take the the cookie sheet from the counter to the oven. What makes the difference is the fact that in the oven, the environment is different. And when you change the environment, you facilitate transformation. And so, see, being in our houses is not going to change anything about us spiritually unless we change the environment. I feel this thing. If we don't change the environment, there will not be a transformation. And we'll just come out of this thing having been stale cookie dough for the last eight weeks if we don't shift the way that we do things in our house. What does that look like? Man, you need to take this time to establish prayer time with your kids. Establish a devotional life with your wife, with your husband. Establish some time with each other that your focus is not not on entertainment, that it's not on pleasure, that it's not on, but it's on how can we as a family draw closer to God. And if that happens, can I tell you, there will be transformation in your spiritual life. And when every single one of us as the body of Christ begins to experience the transformation of the spirit, it will change the way that we do church. It will change the way that we function. So he said, you got to get out of this place. You've got to leave the Mount of Olives in order to receive the promise. You've got to go somewhere else. You've got to change your environment. And so they do. They leave the Mount of Olives. They go to the upper room, and they begin to pray. And they pray, and they pray, and they pray, and they pray for days, literally days. They're praying, seeing no promise come to pass, like, Jesus, we did what you said. We're not seeing what you said. We were deceived. And they keep praying. And then Peter does something really weird. Like in the middle of this prayer meeting, Peter does something so strange in Acts chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. And just to give you a real gist of it, like imagine you're, you're at prayer meeting and we're all crying out to God, send your spirit, send your anointing, all the things that we pray. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, let's say Pastor Allen stands up and he says, hey, by the way, I want to call to order a business meeting real quick. We're in the middle of prayer meeting, Peter. Like, we're seeking the power of God. We're seeking the promise from heaven. And you want to talk about our governmental structure right now? 
Because Peter stood up and he said, Judas was prophesied that he was going to betray us, and he did, and then he plunged forth and he spilled his bowels, as the KJV says it, because, you know, why wouldn't you say it that way? And then he, he's talking about all this, and he said, but in Psalms chapter 109, it says that we have to replace him. See, here's the thing. Jesus had chosen 12 disciples, but there were only 11. And so Peter stands up and he says, before God is going to send his promise, there are some roles that have to be filled. And I think that this season of our life, that what's happening is that the Holy Spirit is saying, I want to send revival, but y'all been outsourcing and leaving vacant some roles that need to be filled before I can do so. Because here's what we do. And, and I don't know, maybe I think all of us are filling roles that we didn't anticipate we were going to fill in this season. Where are my homeschool moms and dads at? I did not anticipate being a teacher right now, but here we are. I didn't anticipate that I was going to be a coach this season, but here we are. I didn't anticipate having to be the, the action figure playmate for, for eight-year-olds, but here I am. Like, we're having to do things that we didn't anticipate we were going to have to do. We're filling roles that we didn't anticipate having to fill. But can I tell you, I believe a role that we're going to all have to step into in this season that is going to facilitate revival is I believe that God is calling many of us to step into a pastoral role. Well, what do you mean by that, Pastor Tyler? Here's what we do. We outsource the pastoral roles in our families to the professionals. Like, Pastor Brian is my kid's pastor. Like, and don't get me wrong, I love what Pastor Brian does. I love what New Life Kids does. But Pastor Brian is not the person who has been primarily tasked with pastoring my children. I am. Like, I love Pastor Allen and Miss Kathy. I love the leadership that they give to our church. But do you know that the person that's been called to pastor my spouse is not Pastor Allen and Miss Kathy, though they're one of them? The primary responsibility of pastoring my spouse is me. And my spouse is the primary one to pastor. What do you mean? You're called to pastor your circle of friends. You're called to pastor those in your influence. Well, what do you mean? Like, I'm not called to preach. No, a pastor is someone who prays for, who challenges, who holds accountable, who says, I want to see your spiritual growth. I want to see you know more of God. And what's happening is this in this season is that we're not able to outsource it to professionals anymore. We can't depend on the pastoral staff to be the only ones that hold our spouses accountable. And so in this season, you're going to have to step up and say, listen, I just want to talk to you, honey. How's your prayer life? I just want to talk to you, son. Are you reading your Bible? Are you growing in your faith? And as you step into those roles, I believe God is going to send his spirit because Peter shows us the truth that before the spirit can come, roles have to be filled. And so they, they have this business meeting and they choose the new disciple. And after that, something amazing happens in Acts chapter 2, verse number 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord, one a place. We read this earlier. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind. Now, how exciting would that be? Literally, you've just spent a week and a half praying and seeing nothing until we had Peter's little makeshift business meeting that happened. And then, and now out of nowhere, we're praying and we're all weary and we're tired. And then, boom, there's hurricane force winds in the room. Like, this is amazing. This is so exciting. And if it were us, a lot of us would have been satisfied to say, we heard a sound. That must be the promise. Let's go home. And I think that if there's ever been anything that I think personifies the churches. I think that we mirror this a little bit because if they had heard the sound and been satisfied with that, they would have felt God's presence without having been filled with his power. 
And I think that every single week we gather together and we sing and we worship and we preach and we hear a sound. And we get excited because the sound feels good. And so we sing for the sound and we praise for the sound and we dance for the sound. But here's the thing, the sound doesn't change anything. The sound just gets us excited. It it builds and bolsters our emotions but leaves us unchanged. And I think that as a whole, not just our church, but the church world in general has become the church of the sound. That we feel him and we hear him and we know he's in the room, but we never get filled with him. And so I think that there's a whole generation of Christ followers that are singing and praising God for a promise that they will never receive because they're satisfied to feel his presence in a room without ever hosting his presence in their hearts. That's where, we're, that's where we were as the church. That's where we were at. We had become dependent on the house because that's where the sound was filled. And so God took the house away. God removed the house and he said, you can't depend on the worship team anymore to build you up. You can't depend on the pastor to preach you into a moment of encouragement. But now we've all been forced into a season of very intense and very detailed self-evaluation. And I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, I've found myself lacking. I've found myself very dependent upon the corporate gathering. And don't get me wrong, it's important. Like we need to gather Hebrews says to not neglect the assembling of ourselves together with the brethren, even so much more as the day approaches. Like, it's what we're called to do. But at the same time, my faith and my walk with Jesus cannot be dependent on anything else but me. I got to make sure that I'm right for myself. And so we've been forced into self-evaluation. And these are the questions that I've been asking myself and that have been really convicting me is, why do you pursue what you pursue? Why do you want the things that you pray for and the things that you ask for? Is it because you want to further the kingdom or is it because you want to facilitate your comfort? Is it because you want to see my will be done or is it because you have your own idea and your own agenda and your own preference of how things ought to happen? We've been forced into this season of self-evaluation. And here's the thing. God's not called us into this season as a means of condemnation He's not done it because he's mad at us. He's done it because he knows there's something more. He's done it because he knows that we are living with just a surface level experience when there's so much more to be offered. Because look what happens when they weren't satisfied with a sound in the house. Acts chapter 2 verse number 3. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled Before, it had just filled the house. Now, it was filling the believers. Before, it was just a sound. Now, it was an experience. And can I tell you that the reason God has called us into this season of self-evaluation is because when we come back from this, it's not just going to be that we get to experience the sound in the room. But I believe that God is going to raise up a generation of believers that are full of His Spirit. Because here's the thing. The ones that really need the effect of the Spirit are usually not in the room. 
The ones that need what we have usually aren't at service. The person that needs you to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit is the boss that you clock into on Monday. It's the, the teacher that you encounter at PTA on Tuesday. It's the, the parent of your child's softball or baseball team. It's people that you never think about. They're the ones that need us to have an experience that is bigger than a sound because they're probably not going to be in the room initially. They need us to be filled with the Spirit. God's very passionate about making sure that we don't relegate him to a room because he's been there, done that. There was a time where the Spirit of God just dwelled in the Holy of Holies. And when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was rent from top to bottom and God had legal right. He had jurisdiction to manifest anywhere and everywhere that one of his followers carried his presence. And so he's not satisfied to be relegated to a room. He wants to manifest throughout our world. When Peter got filled with the Spirit, when the disciples got filled with the Spirit in the upper room that day, they experienced a perspective shift. Because that always happens when you get filled with the Spirit. Before, before that moment, they had all been praying for and believing for something that was going to happen in the room. They were all praying for and believing for an experience that they personally would receive. And their focus was all inner, inner room. It was all focused on themselves and those that were inside. But the moment they got filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, their focus was no longer about who was in the room, but on the world that was outside of it. And so Peter stood up in Acts chapter 2, verse number 14, and it said, Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. When they got filled with the Spirit, their focus wasn't on themselves. It was on the world that they were called to reach. And I'm believing that God's going to use this season this, this moment of isolation, this moment that we can't be in the room, this moment that we can't hear the sound like we used to, I'm believing that God is going to use it to fill us to the degree that our focus is not what happens in this room, though we can't wait to have it back. But our focus is how we use what we feel in this room to change the world that is outside of it. Because that's the calling of you and I as believers. And this is something that wasn't in my notes but I want to share with you as I close is that whenever you get filled with his spirit, those that were filled with the spirit, it changes their priorities. James and John were in the upper room and they received the same baptism of the spirit that Peter did. And the Bible says that Peter stood up with the 11. He had the support of every other disciple, James and John included. What's significant about that is just a couple months before that experience took place, James and John had had their mom say, can my kids be the greatest in the kingdom? But when they got filled with the Spirit, their focus was not, I need position and I need authority. Their focus was whoever is best facilitated and enabled to reach the lost, that's who we're going to support. And so no longer was it about promoting James and John's agenda. It was about Jesus being preached. 
And so wherever you're at, whatever that looks like for you, I'm believing that God's sending a personal experience with his spirit to the degree that it doesn't matter what position we hold. It doesn't matter what level we're at. However, Jesus is being preached. However, our communities are being changed. However, the addicted are being delivered and however the broken are being restored. That's what we celebrate and pursue. We can't go back to normal. We can't go back to what we understood and what we had accepted because it wasn't working. And God is calling his church, I believe, in these last days to do something new. But if we're going to do something new, it's going to cost what was normal.